every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. On the way to the rocket, Ivan said, guys, uh, I have a mission for you. What kind of mission? So, you know, Vladimir Kovalyonov was the commander of the space station and his wife, Nina, gave me some uh, fresh onion to be given to him. He wants to eat fresh onion. Okay, but how to do, what to do? And he just took a bunch of fresh onion in the newspaper and said, take it, it has to be <laughs> sent to the outer space. Some Russian pilots were trained in Star City to face smaller Gs, 1.5 or 2 Gs, but for hours. And some of them, they lost conscience because they, they just tested them to the limit to see where is the limit. But of course, instantly they stopped the centrifuge, took measures and so on. Welcome to another episode of the Endurance Cartel Podcast. We have a very special treat for you guys. This day, this morning, this afternoon, wherever in the world you are, we have with us the first Romanian astronaut ever to enter space, Mr. Dimitru Dorin Prunariu. He was the 103rd person into space overall and the first Romanian into space. So with that being said, welcome to the Endurance Cartel Podcast. May I call you Dorin? Yes, Dorin is better. Dorin. So welcome to the Endurance Cartel Podcast. And again, I want to take advantage and just your jacket is just stellar. <laughs> Thank you very much for the occasion of putting the jacket on. All we need is some stars in the back and we'll be in space. This is my European jacket. Oh my God. Hey, listen, that jacket is gold. Okay. Thank you very much. You, my friend, I have seen thousands of uh, interviews and read a lot of articles just so I can have the pleasure of talking to you in this day. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if whether this is your first English podcast or podcast interview or on. Actually, I gave some interviews in English, but not a podcast as you record now. Going back to the beginning of it all, how you became the first Romanian astronaut into space. You were at the top of your class. We're talking in 1981 when there was still the Cold War. Romania was part of the communist bloc at that time. And you trained under the Intercosmos Russian program. And you were the first Romanian in space under that program. Right. So I know we spoke a little bit before. The recording of it all, you shared some wonderful stories and it's, uh, <laughs> we can touch on them again. Uh, okay. I really want us to dive deep into how you were training. What was it like training to go to space during that era? Because times have changed. Everything has changed in terms of training astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts. And uh, cosmonauts, just so everybody can understand, cosmonaut is the term that it's under the Russian program. An astronaut is for the NASA or payouts or whatever in the American program, but we'll call you an astronaut for now, just so we can all be on the same page. I can tell you that a lot of Russians flew with Americans and Americans flew with the Russians. How do you name them? Cosmoastronaut or Astrocosmonaut? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So actually, uh, however do you name us, we have the same type of train. We face into the outer space the same challenges. We face the space environment, the microgravity, the same radiation. And uh, we fly inside of uh, 
the space type of uh, space stations. So the challenge is the same one. Actually, I was selected for the space flight in 1978. Romania took part in the Intercosmos program starting with 1968. The program itself started in 1967, and we joined the program one year after. And the program aimed to build a space research infrastructure in the former partner countries of the USSR to develop skills of the scientists, to join them in common programs, and of course, to train people to fly into the outer space to accomplish very complex experiments. I was part of the Intercosmos program. Actually, I was before an aerospace engineer. I was in the right place in the right time to find out about the selections and to raise the hand and said, uh, yes, I would like to take part in the selections. So I never thought at that time that I could be the first one, but I just wanted to do it. After I started to be trained for the outer space, I became found in, uh, in this field of activity. As an airspace engineer, I had a lot of knowledge from the university about the theory of the space flight, about the equations and so on and many other things. But in more practical things, I learned all this stuff uh, in Star City during the three years of training. So the regular training for any cosmonaut is three years. And then he specialized for different type of uh, space flights, short, long, medium. As first cosmonauts from our countries, we were scheduled to fly in different periods of times. My colleagues before me from uh, the Czech Republic, uh, East Germany, Poland, uh, and then Bulgaria, Cuba, Mongolia, Vietnam even, they were trained a shorter time because uh, the schedule didn't permit them to do a full training. But they were very well trained to face the challenges of the outer space, to use the equipment up there the life support uh, on board the space station and the spacecraft, and of course, to accomplish their own experiments. I benefit from longer training, and I'm uh, grateful that I could do it because a short period of time, I was trained also as a commander of the spacecraft, not only as a scientist. As a commander, you understand much better uh, what is the interaction between the two cosmonauts on board the spacecraft I use. At that time, we are only two in the crew, and I uh, was just fortunate to be uh, in the crew with Leonid Popov, a very skilled Russian cosmonaut. By the way, he's originally from Ukraine, and uh, Popov was just seven years older than I was. I was 28, he was 35 when he flew into space. He spent half a year on board the Salyut 6 space station before my space flight, one year before we flew together. So he was not only very skilled, he knew by heart all the equipment, uh, how to do everything on board the space station. So he didn't need to learn too much as I did for my first space flight. I can't say that uh, the difference between the training of the Russian or Soviet or East European uh, cosmonauts is different from the training of the Americans uh, or Westerners astronauts. As I said in the beginning, we face the same challenges into the outer space. So the basic training should be the same. Developing our skills, our hard work capacity, attention to react in uh, real time to all uh, hazards that could happen into the outer space and to face all these situations that could appear and which are not scheduled sometimes. Of course. 
And then he asked you, what was it like? I mean, physically, because nobody can deny that you, my friend, are above a genius in terms of aeronautics. You were at top of your class. I mean, it's... Yeah, that's right. I can tell you one thing. So my uh, university uh, skills training uh, from Romania helped me a lot. Space engineering faculty teaches you a lot of things connected with complex systems like airplanes and rockets. And it helped me a lot during the training in Russia. And besides that, I was the youngest one. So it was easier for me to learn Russian and to learn everything. Uh, sometimes to dream things, mathematics, to close the eyes and to see in front of me everything. Maybe I was a little bit more skilled than other colleagues. But bottom line, at the end of my training, I had the maximum uh, qualifications and the maximum codes. How was to be trained? Uh, actually, we worked eight hours per day. It was a normal working time for any person working in the scientific institute or uh, going to the factory or to the school faculty and so on. During the eight hours, we had a lot of theoretical uh, courses. We had to learn a lot about the outer space itself, about the space environment, about the uh, action of space environment to the materials, to the human beings, to learn a lot about the uh, design and construction, and then the exploitation of spacecrafts types I use and the rockets I use about the space station Salyut 6. And then we had a lot of uh, practical training in simulators. The practical training uh, actually teach us how to act directly from practical point of view, knowing all the theory we learned inside the spacecraft and inside the space uh, laboratory. Besides that, we uh, did sport three times per week for two hours at a time. A lot of games uh, and uh, resistance uh, we run even once I remember that I, I had a record, 20 kilometers, was my own record. Next day I was very tired, but I did it. We cycle also, and uh, also we are trained in the sport room, doing a lot of exercises. Time by time we were tested by a special team and got qualifications. And I could say that I had very good qualifications at that time, very good marks. What was it like, for instance, in, in terms of, okay, so you had those three days of doing sports and the rest of the time there was just theoretical work in terms of what situations would happen in space and whatnot? Two hours every three days. So in the rest, the six hours was a normal theoretical uh, training or a simulator or anything else. Okay, so once you did your physicals, what were you tested on? Like, for instance, how, I'll give you an example, how many, I guess, push-ups you could do or how well your neck was for your G-forces where you're going into the rocket. What kind of training physically were national in that time? Besides the normal physical training that any pilots do or uh, any sportsman, uh, a normal one, not specialized in force or in something else, they look for the resistance of our body, not uh, to be uh, very strong but the resistance to face uh, running uh, many kilometers, to have a normal breath, the heart to work normally during uh, all our training. For Gs, we are trained in the centrifuge. Every month we had a training in the centrifuge. We are trained to face eight Gs from direction uh, 
chest back and uh, 5Gs on the head, but only for 30 seconds. During these 30 seconds, they could measure a lot of medical parameters. And in the same time, if something happened, we could stop any time the centrifuge. Did you have uh, any accidents or anything, or did you see some people just like, whoa? No, because uh, we were in a way protected. Okay. We were given this training, but with some limits. Anytime we were under supervision of a doctor, anytime. If something could happen and the doctor have seen some signs, they stop the training. But, uh, but not for a space flight, just for uh, experiments. Some Russian pilots were trained in Star City to face smaller Gs, 1.5 or 2 Gs, but for hours. And some of them, they lost conscience because they, they just tested them to the limit to see where is the limit. But of course, instantly they stopped the centrifuge, took measures and so on. That was some experiments, but uh, they were not connected with us. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, you, like you said, you were guys were protected. You guys were going into space in order of a common cause. I mean, in sense of like we were talking at the beginning, just actually expanding our horizons. And um, did you have any crazy thoughts before launch day <laughs> or during launch day? Because I mean, you're strapped to a rocket for Christ's sakes and you are just like, all right, here we go. I think you have a very strange way to think about astronauts and cosmonauts. Actually, I was a little bit scared about the space flight one day before, not in the day of my launch into space. I was launched in the evening, 8.17 p.m. was the launch according to the Eastern European time. One day before, we're given a free time. Not being involved on a regular schedule in anything, we had time to think what would be tomorrow, how will it be tomorrow, to think what was before with some astronauts that had accidents during the space flight. And I tell you, maybe Popov not, but me, before my first space flight, I was a little bit scared. But I said, okay, I have to do it. I was trained for three years, and this is my top of the career, flying into the outer space. Next day in the morning, we started a regular program, uh, breakfast, um, taking our special clothes, going to the Cosmodrome. Do you remember your breakfast? Yeah, yeah. I had a normal breakfast. Normal. Yeah, no, well, I mean, it's like, I'm amazed that you actually remember the time that you were launched, 8.17. You remember, like, everything you were doing at that point before the launch, huh? At least I remember very well the launch, because it was first in my life, and, uh, <laughs> okay, I stand to all these things. Uh, any second was recorded in my mind. We were taken to the Cosmodrome. We... Uh, tested our space suits, uh, did some exercises before the space flight. Also, we had a lot of things to take with us into the outer space, uh, equipment, medicine, parts of the experiments. Uh, we had knowledge about all these things where are stored in the spacecraft. And then uh, we uh, met the official delegations of Romania and of the Soviet Union at that time, the officials that came. So the Ministry of Defense of Romania came to Cosmodrome Baikonur, the head of the military aviation, the Air Force head, and some other people, officials from Romania. We gave some interviews, but from behind the glass. So we were not in touch directly. We tested our spacesuits uh, before going to the rocket to be sure that everything is functioning perfect and went out from the building where we were dressed with our spacesuits and uh, with a bus, we were taken to the rocket. What did you say to your wife, for instance, before you got in that rocket? What were you thinking? 
in the org before getting into that rocket? Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you think maybe that I had very special thoughts and so on. I tell you one story. From the building to the rocket in the bus, it was a special bus pressurized and so on. That it's only the crew and the medical doctor of the crew, one person. We knew him very well from Star City. He um, took part in our training in all uh, measuring all parameters, medical parameters and so on. And on the way to the rocket, Ivan was his name. Mm -hmm. said, guys, uh, I have a mission for you. What kind of mission? So, you know, Vladimir Kovalyonok was the commander of the space station and his wife, Nina, gave me some uh, fresh onion to be given to him. He wants to eat fresh onion. <laughs> okay, but how to do, what to do? And he just took a bunch of fresh onion in the newspaper and said, take it. You know how, but it has to be <laughs> sent to the outer space. That's so random. And Popov uh, gave it to me. I put it in a pocket. I took off my, uh, my glove oh my because there was a special pocket for the glove. I took the glove on my hand and I put the onion there. Right. And we flew away the onion into the outer space. Oh, my God. Look what type of thoughts we had. <laughs> but no, seriously speaking, we were elevated about 50 meters to the top of the rocket. We went inside the spacecraft through a hedge. That hedge was closed forever. Anything could happen to the rocket, but that hedge never uh, was meant to be reopened. We could just be through to the atmosphere, into the outer space with uh, the ejection system in case of a fire of the rocket of uh, hazard and could get out uh, through another hedge. But that one, I acknowledge at that time that it's closed forever and never will be opened. Never even during the space flight, after the landing even, it's not anymore open. Okay, went to the rocket two hours before the launch, tested a lot of parameters of the spacecraft. Some of the parameters was measured on the ground and we just verify if we have the same indications. We had some free time. We listened to some pop music, very pleasant. We choose our preferred music at that time. And just before the lunch, we were set, guys, ready. 10, 9, 8, and so on, so on, zero, start. And then we just feel the small shake like that, the rocket. And step by step, he started to push us harder and harder and harder till about 3.8 Gs. And then after about three minutes, I just felt that, uh, in my understanding, something crashed and we fall down. And Popov looked quietly at me and said, no, 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 it was just the first stage. Just get out and uh, till the next stage, enter to the full regime. We just feel a decrease of uh, the Gs and this is the feeling that you fall down. And then again, Gs, 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 the second stage. Again, Gs, Gs, the third stage. And after 8 minutes and 50 seconds, the third stage undocked from the spacecraft and the spacecraft was put on the orbit, full silence, weightlessness inside, everything started to float around, our documentation, our pens. Uh, what was your initial reaction? I, I just look amazed how is to be in weightlessness. I had my belts, I had everything. Uh, I was fixing the chair. And Popov said, don't look on the ground because the altitude is very high and maybe you are not used to, you have to adapt to this. 
I didn't listen to anything. I instantly looked on the window I had on my right shoulder and I was amazed. I was in love with the image I've seen from up there. So actually, I've seen the horizon of the earth because it was during the night. was a brown shadow on the horizon. I've seen the lights down on the earth, the lights of the big cities. And after several minutes, maybe 15 minutes, the sun rised. I couldn't look at the sun. How was that? So powerful. The light was so strong, so powerful, oh, wow. so intense. Uh-huh. But uh, I've seen the rise of the sun from the outer space. I've seen uh, the earth illuminated by the sun. I've seen a lot of interesting places. I didn't recognize instantly all the places, but I just look amazed down to the earth. How many times did you go around the earth? We turned around the earth 125 times during seven days, 20 hours, 42 minutes. Jesus. From what I understand, you saw Romania a lot of times during that. The first time you ever saw Romania from outer space? Yes, I've seen Romania. Not not quite a lot of times. I, I wish to see it more frequently, but, you know, uh, the spacecraft turns around the Earth in one and a half hour. The Earth itself turns around its uh, axis once in 24 hours. Right. So any one and a half hour, we found the Earth turned with when one and a half hour. So actually, Romania, we could see at about seven o'clock in the evening every day. Was evening on the ground, the last rays of the sun just touched the clouds and uh, the dust in the atmosphere and impurities and left long shadows uh, on the ground. But of course, I could see the Carpathian Mountains, the Black Sea, the Danube River and so on. What a sight. I could recognize the place where I was born, where I live with my family in Bucharest. No way. Yeah. So you went to the space station called Salut 6, correct? Yes, right. And what was it like? I mean, first off, what, what was the size of the space station and what was a regular day for Dorin in those days? Actually, the space station was one module space station. It's similar to one module of the International Space Station. It has 16 now, if I'm not mistaken. One module uh, with a length of about 15 meters and with a maximum diameter of 4 meters. Uh-huh. But uh, the maximum exterior diameter, because inside you had on the walls a lot of equipment and the equipment was protected by some cartoon walls or uh, some synthetic materials. So if I uh, raise the hands like that, I could touch uh, both walls from left and right. Okay. Inside the space station, we lived four persons for one week. Each of us uh, had its own uh, private place, not room, place. I slept in the sleeping bag on the ceiling of the space station. <laughs> uh-huh. My colleagues said that uh, that is the honorary place for guests, for me. <laughs> also, we had a separate and designated toilet. Sure, you need it. So you, you have a normal life up there. You have a normal life, but just everything happened in weightlessness. And the weightlessness caused a lot of problems to the human body, a lot of transformation in the human body. Tell me about that. First, uh, you feel the blood coming with a high pressure on the upper part of the body. And you just have a kind of headache. You feel pressure in your head. And at the same time, you are cold on the feet because they are not fitted well with the blood because the blood comes up. Right. And the feeling of staying with the head down, this is the feeling when the blood press in the head, lasted for about two days, two and a half days. 
and then step by step you feel that you turn and uh, for a period of time stay horizontally and then step by step when you completely adapt to the weightlessness you feel that you stay normally into the outer space but you float during the time during all this time you float but just the feeling is that you float all the time with the head down and then horizontally and then you float uh, normally as you sit uh, on the ground i've seen nasa videos that they would require their astronauts to keep on doing any type of resistance training to keep their muscles understanding that they're going to go back to gravity yes so did you guys do any of that while they were in the space station I did it, uh, personally, I did it just for uh, measuring my medical parameters. Okay. Because during one week, it's not so long, so they are not uh, to strong transformation in the body. But if you stay longer than two weeks, it is mandatory to do all these things, to exercise uh, one and a half, two hours every day on board the space station. Our flight was short. Okay. So I was not obliged to do all these things, even if I tried, I, I just wanted to see how it is. But my colleagues uh, from the main crew, they did every day uh, these exercises. We were lunch, I said, in the evening. Usually I had a very regular life. So I, I slept eight hours per day. Right. I uh, just fall asleep quite instantly when I, I was in the bed. I put the head on the pillow. And then I could uh, wake up at the exact time when I uh, thought about it. Uh, by, by instance, when, when I slept on the ground, I just thought about waking up at 7 o'clock. And without any watch, without anything, at 7 plus minus 5 minutes, I could wake up. Up there in the space, I was very tired after the lunch, and then we worked till 4 a.m. in the morning. We worked because we had to test all the equipment of the spacecraft yeah. to test everything because the first Test flight is during the real flight. You have to accomplish the flight, talk to the space station, and to accomplish all the scientific program. First, you test all the spacecraft. And then you make the first space maneuver to change the orbit and to get closer to the space laboratory. We finished at about 4 o'clock in the morning. I was very tired. And we uh, undressed from the spacesuit, took our training suit, and went to the orbital module. It's another module with a diameter of about two meters, a spheric one. And then you can sleep. You have a small toilet if it's necessary. Then you have food. And uh, I just stretch my uh, legs. I uh, get in a sleeping bag and I fall asleep very deep. Next day, I, I woke up at about 1130 and when I woke up, I still had the eyes closed and I thought that I'm at home in my bed and I have to go to work. Oh, no. That was in my head. And when I opened the eyes, I've seen the interior of the spacecraft and I said, uh-oh, I was launching the space yesterday. <laughs> I'm right here. Oh, my God. Up in the space. So I was so tired that I couldn't think that uh, I'm in the space at that time. I can only imagine. So I realized that I'm in a real space flight and never happened to think that I'm on the ground during a space flight. But that was the first thought and uh, the first reaction to the space flight when I woke up next morning. Of course, uh, we accomplished our space program. We did a second uh, space maneuver. We are close to the space station with our board radars. We uh, exactly determine where we are, what is our position turn the engines up, down, left, right, and so on, just to enter in a fictional corridor 
to get closer and closer to the space station and to dock. All this regime, it's uh, very active. It's very dynamic. And uh, you have to dress again your spacesuit just to be protected in case of uh, desermetization in a so dynamic regime. Actually, you stay inside the spacecraft in your spacesuit during the launch, during the maneuvers, during the docking with a space station, and then only after undocking and landing. Otherwise, you have a jacket, you have a normal training suit, uh, very light. Inside, the temperature is conditioned. You may turn it uh, on, off. Uh, we could rise the temperature till 25 degrees centigrade. You count in Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. Or uh, 15. Between 15 and 25, we can uh, regulate the temperature inside. The air, it's uh, filtered uh, all the time. The CO2, it's captured by uh, special chemical substances and the oxygen is released in the atmosphere and you breathe actually the same air all the time conditioned. So that was our life up there. When I flew in the space laboratory from the spacecraft, the space looked much bigger, much bigger till I uh, became usual with the space. And then I appreciate that it is normal space, could be bigger even. But from the spacecraft, everything is very narrow. The space is very limited. To the space laboratory, it, it's a big difference. I'm curious, did you guys respect each other's space and in the sense of, all right, we're all crowded in here, let's make the best of it? Any disagreements between you guys? Everybody was in the same wavelength and very serene. You know, we were very well trained to accomplish our program. Okay. We uh, trained together to know exactly what to do each of us and when and how. Mm-hmm. In the same time, we were friends. We live in the same star city together. We met for different parties. We uh, spent time together with the families. So we didn't have disagreements. Uh, of course, uh, sometimes a guy like Kovalyonov, the commander of the space laboratory, was a little bit too tough with regard to some uh, opinions. Yeah. I had the opportunity to see a launch of uh, rockets from the ground. Uh, when I look in uh, in the window in the evening, and I've seen the trace of the rocket through the atmosphere, it was lost somewhere into the outer space. Instantly, I took the camera and I took some pictures and I called my colleagues to see what happened and to see the phenomenon because it is very rare to see such things from the outer space. And Kovalyunov started shot instantly. Yes, these are Americans. They make lunches. They don't announce us put us in danger and so on. And I said, okay, Volodya, let's, let's count where we are and where was the launch. And I've seen we were over the Great Britain. Mm-hmm. I've seen it uh, with a deviation of about 20 degrees from our trajectory. I measured the time. Mm-hmm. I've seen the launch, uh, so the trace on the horizon. To the horizon, they are about 2,000 kilometers from the place where we were. I counted the time, I counted the place, and I've shown it was exactly in Murmansk, where the Russians have the nuclear submarines and rockets and so on. Oh, my God. And I said, guys, uh, according to my calculations, <laughs> because I knew very well how to navigate, uh-huh. the launch was here. Was a forced silence. They never said anything about that. We report to the ground. Oh. Never had any information about the launch. Everybody shut up and never talk about that lunch anymore. 
Oh my God. But the first reaction of Kovalyonok, yes, the Americans against us, they do things and so on. Oh my God. Wow. I mean, you touched on something that I wanted to ask you, but now that you touched on it, I read that you guys brought in more than an onion into space. <laughs> you know too much things about us. You brought in a Canon camera, which was in a way prohibited by the Russians because it was a Western. Yeah, let's say prohibited. Actually, on board the space station at that time, we use East German cameras Praktika with three types of lenses. 24 for white uh, photography, 50 for normal ones, and 135 millimeters for uh, uh, far pictures. In the same time, we had a flash. But any time when you take a picture with a flash, you have to calculate the distance to put the diaphragm, uh, everything manually. It was quite impossible to take nice, good pictures without preparing everything in advance. Uh -huh. In any case, just some pictures was quite impossible to take with these cameras. Of course, we had another one, um, Hasselblad. The Russians had an agreement with the Swedish ones to use Hasselblad, the white film camera. But Popov knew all these things, and he was disturbed by the fact that we could not have such instant pictures on board. And uh, after his first space flight, he told me, you know, we need an automatic camera there but we don't have such cameras in Russia. And we asked the French team, so the French ones, Patrick Baudry and Jean-Luc Chrétien, were on training in Star City. Me and my wife, we are the only ones speaking French with them, and they became very good friends. And once Patrick Baudry went for the new year, went home in France, we gave him $100 and <laughs> Patrick, we need such type of cameras we found in a newspaper, uh -huh. an interesting camera, a small Canon one automatic with film, of course. We didn't have any digital device at that time, thing that it was 41 years ago. Of course. And uh, Patrick just took this amazing camera. We tested it uh, on the ground. We did perfect pictures and we used it into the outer space. We took it unofficially up there. We succeeded to do it. Popov teach us how to do it. And also the people around in Star City and Baikonur, they knew each other. They were neighbors in the Star City. Mm -hmm. They could confess to each other and they help each other with different unofficial things. We took very nice pictures, bring back the Kodak films, give them to be developed in the laboratory of the Star City, where they were very good specialists in photography. They developed the films and look at the pictures and said, guys... What camera did you use for these uh, pictures? Practica. Oh, no. Hello. Oh. Practica has uh, a lens of 24 millimeters, 50, and 135. This is about 38, as we see. Of course, that was <laughs> the objective <laughs> of that camera, 38. And we, we confessed that, uh, okay, we use such a camera. And they said, okay, your pictures are very good. We don't say anything, but let us use them officially for those intercostal programs. And we deal. <laughs> okay. Do you still have that camera now? Not me, Popov. Uh, it belonged to him, actually. And I hope he has this camera at home. It's a real treasure. Yes. And um, once on your way back from the station, what's the procedure like? I mean, you guys are just, all right, let, we're going to be ready to land. Because you, you guys landed on land. You were not landing on water. Yes, 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 yes. It's completely different. So were you guys prepared to land on land? Or what was it like? 
the standard landing was on land. Mm -hmm. It was a standard landing for the Russian spacecraft Soyuz. Okay. And it is. It could get down in the water as well. Okay. Could face any situation around the Earth. But normal landing, it's on the ground. Actually, when you have to come back, okay, I was very sorry that I couldn't stay more. I liked the outer space. I wanted to see more of the Earth. So the amazing images of the Earth impressed me a lot. I took some pictures. I still have, but very few, because we use film, normal film, and it was limited. Uh -huh. Not like now, digital cameras, you click thousand times, you charge the battery, you click another thousand times, and so on. And all the parameters of uh, the flight were given to us from the ground. We couldn't measure on board things connected with the navigation. Now, with the help of the GPS, of the global navigation systems, you could measure on board anything. You could calculate anything. But at that time, only from the ground, they, uh, they could make all these calculations and give us the parameters when to undock, when to turn with the engine uh, in front of us, the, the spacecraft, how to orient the spacecraft against the, the Earth and to turn on the engine to decrease the speed and where to enter the atmosphere. And uh, when you turn the engine on, you know exactly how many seconds to leave it. Mm -hmm. If I well remember, uh, for our space, uh, the sand was 180 seconds. And the speed decreased a little bit, and you transformed the orbit in the ballistic orbit and just joined the atmosphere under an angle of about one, two degrees. Not too much. You don't come vertically because the, the Gs could be too high. If you have a controlled pass through the atmosphere, this bell, because the, the module, the landing module is like a bell with a height of about two meters and a diameter of about two meters and two people inside, it is controlled in the atmosphere just to limit the Gs to about 3.8. If you don't have the normal situation during the entering of the atmosphere, it is uncontrolled and it just falls down on a ballistic trajectory and so the Gs inside rise till 8, 8.5 Gs. It's more difficult. The, the Bulgarian crew, the first Bulgarian crew, had such a situation and this was, was terrible. What was it like physically? I mean, like, was it completely the reverse of uh, obviously going up? What was feeling that weight of gravity again? Feeling all those things in your body as you're coming in? Yeah, you know, first you feel, uh, you feel the Gs. And after the weightlessness, everything looked to be twice uh, heavier, twice difficult. Right. During the passing through the atmosphere, about 15 minutes, so the landing module just vibrates very strongly, and also the G sacks to you. Everything is automatic. You just sit and wait, sit and wait. And at an altitude of about 12.6 uh, uh, kilometers, the parachute starts opening. So there's a full train of parachutes, five parachutes. Uh, training parachutes, stabilizing parachutes, about stabilizing parachutes, and the big one that opens. In our case, uh, it didn't open at 12.6 uh, kilometers high. We counted. Uh, we are very scared that we just fall down without a parachute. It uh, was delayed uh, a few seconds, but uh, enough seconds to scare not only us, only the people from the command center near Moscow. Right. And our parachute opened at an altitude of about seven wow. kilometers, 7.5 kilometers, yes. But it opened and we are happy 
that we hang in the parachute. And then uh, everything goes smooth. We have communications with a helicopter that comes to, to pick us from the place where we land. And they told us, okay, guys, be ready in five, four, three, two, one second. You hit the earth. We're trained. And you hit the earth uh, with the back of uh, the module, usually. Before the landing, some retro jets uh, turn on to put softly the, the module on the ground. But if you have wind at the landing place, so the jets could turn on when the, the module is on a side, and then it is turned down with the other side and hit you very strongly to the earth. It happened to us as well. But you are very well uh, fixed in the chair. That chair, it's uh, made exactly uh, on the shape of your body. Nothing moved inside. So even if you are shaken completely and have a strong impact, you don't suffer. Okay, you feel it. Yeah. You feel it, but uh, you don't suffer after that. And we just stayed aside and waited for the rescue team to, to take us uh, from the spacecraft. I really wanted in that same moment to uh, unbelt and to do myself the work to open the hatch and to get out. Right. Popov said, don't do it. But at that time was so impressed by everything. I've seen inside the spacecraft Everything flying on the determined direction. Actually, all the things inside, they fall down. But I didn't realize that that is the direction of the earth. <laughs> you are very perturbed in the very beginning when you land. And I unbelt and I fall down over Popov. Oh. And he said, what do you do? <laughs> so I just want to get out to feel the earth under my feet. Uh -huh. And the rescue team just came and took us out from the module. I was dizzy and the first moment I couldn't orient myself. If I turned ahead, I, I felt that the earth turns with me. Oh, man. And we were put on two chairs and we laid about one hour in the semi-horizontal position. Of course, I really felt a feeling of happiness being again on the ground and feeling the ground under my feet. Another helicopter with the reporters, uh, with media, came. Instantly, they ran to us, the first interviews in Russian, in Romanian. Of course, they were pretty short at that time. Ah. I didn't know what uh, life I have to expect after the space flight, the public life. I was not prepared for that life. It took me some time to adapt and to enter in the new personality of myself <laughs> as a public person and as a cosmonaut. So that happened at that time. Well, yes, you are a superstar. You were granted so many medals and hero standards. Oh, you know, you know, all these things come. If you continue to work hard, if you continue to do your job. So there are institutions, organizations that appreciate you. Uh -huh. I never work for distinctions. I never work for orders, for military degrees and so ranks and so on. But I've got them. Before uh, being sent to the Star City, I was proposed to become an active officer because I was a civilian one. Yes. And I accepted. I became a lieutenant at that time. So I actually had three small stars. Uh, lieutenant was with two stars. Going back to your landing. Yeah. I read somewhere, or I think I viewed it, in the sense of your recovery from getting back to Earth in the sense of feeling gravity, that they said that you were walking one way and then uh, you wanted to turn right, but you could not turn right for some reason. What was it? I mean, this is kind of like the, the after effects. It's just the effect of the gravity after weightlessness. Yeah. 
you know, vestibular apparatus uh, don't work normally on the ground in the first hours, even the first day. Uh, so after about two hours, I could walk by myself, but going straight. If I wanted to turn to the left or to the right, I just felt that my legs turn, but my body goes straight and I fall down. The balance in my body was reestablished after maybe one day oh my God. after a flight of eight days into the outer space. How awkward would that be? <laughs> try to imagine how it's for the astronauts that stay one year up there into the outer space. Yeah. The transformation in the body are much deeper and uh, the readaptation to the earth conditions takes also months and months. Okay, not the first feeling of the earth. You become used with the gravity in one day, two days maybe. But all this transformation and some misperceptions happen for a long time. That's crazy. I mean, were you isolated for a certain time after the, the landing? Actually, no, because uh, we were just inside the spacecraft, inside the space laboratory. They were uh, isolated from the outside. We didn't walk on the moon to bring with us dust from other space body. Got it. We just came from inside. We were free from the very beginning. We are not isolated. But uh, our medical parameters were uh, measured for 24 hours continuously after the space flight. We had a halter with um, many sensors of our body. We slept with all the sensors and they measured all the parameters uh, during the difficult period of readaptation to the earth conditions. So, you know, we have the endurance exchange. This section, we have modified it because it's, it is a special episode. You are the first person in space that we have on our podcast. Very glad. It is a true privilege. And I wanted to ask you, in today's climate, what's going on between the Russians and Americans? At the same time, before the interview, you said that it is a common cause. Russian and Americans, they put their political beliefs on one side and they're working in the, in the ISS, International Space Station. There is a common purpose. So if there are Russians and Americans right now in space working together, there is no political climate in space, correct? Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, when you fly into the outer space, you see the Earth as uh, unity. You see the entire Earth and you understand that uh, it belongs to all humans on the Earth. You are not only the citizen of your country, you become a citizen of the planet flying into the outer space. You see the beauties from, uh, from the outer space, the beauties of the Earth. And uh, you see also the wounds of the Earth made by men, made by nature. And uh, you understand that this is our only home of all of us. We don't have any other one. You see the atmosphere around the earth as a very thin layer. And you understand that this atmosphere contains the oxygen you breathe. Not only you, the animals, the plants and so on. And really, uh, whatever country do you represent when you fly into space, when you come back, you have the same understanding of the problems of the earth. And uh, all of us who have been up there into the outer space organized in 1985 during the Cold War an association of space explorers, non-governmental, apolitical organization that tries to make people understand the beauties of the Earth, the problems of the Earth, uh, the necessity to protect the Earth, to educate the young generation and to be examples for them. And uh, we gathered for the first time in 1985 near Paris in France, 25 astronauts and cosmonauts from 13 countries, from the US, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, uh, Eastern European countries, Russia, and so on. 
in the beginning, no one trained with the Russians spoke English, with the exception of the French ones. And no one trained with the Americans spoke Russian. And we had translators. In the beginning, we looked to each other like two strange persons that we understood that uh, we are similar. We did the same thing. We've seen the same earth from the outer space, started to talk uh, with the help of the uh, translators. We decided to have every year a congress of the Association of Space Explorers in different countries, started to learn English, and the Americans started to learn Russian. And in 90, when all the political changes in the world happened and uh, there were no differences between East and West, we became a free society. The Russians signed an agreement with the Americans to build together the International Space Station. It was an agreement signed in 1992. And then uh, mutual understanding uh, happened and uh, it lasted many, many years. The Americans are still trained in Star City near Moscow to fly Soyuz spacecrafts. The Russians, some of them, they are trained in the U.S. First, they flew the space shuttle. Now they fly uh, Dragon crew of SpaceX, but on behalf of NASA. Right now, this fall was launched uh, on a Crew Dragon, a Russian lady into the outer space, and an American astronaut was launched with a Soyuz spacecraft. The mutual interest is too high to work together to mix the, the geopolitical problems from the ground. Elon Musk and all these private section that are just going into space, it's like, like the private section of Race to Space way back when, but SpaceX, all these celebrities wanting to just sign up and go into space. What are your thoughts on that? So actually, I tell you openly, I admire very much Elon Musk. He's first a visionary, a man with power to do things. He dreamed to build uh, human colonies on Mars, and he will do it. As we see, he builds spacecrafts that are uh, recoverable. The cost of a space flight with Elon Musk, it's less than with any other uh, institution, governmental or private institution. And uh, Elon Musk is ready to put people on the moon. Even if for now he builds just the landing module for the Orion spacecraft to take the cosmonauts, the astronauts from the Orion spacecraft to the moon and back to the Orion and to bring them back with Orion to the Earth. But Elon Musk uh, has a vision. All people that want to do something in life should have a vision. We try to inspire people, young people especially, to have a vision, to dream of something and to try to realize their dreams. Some of them do, some not, but uh, in any case, we try to build a base, a private base, a governmental base of uh, well-prepared people to face this very interesting profession of working for the outer space, working as engineers and designers of space equipment, working astronauts, but very few of them, they fly into space. They are about 600 now. I was the 103rd one uh, 41 years ago. So not too many people fly now into the outer space. But with the help of Elon Musk, maybe with the help of Jeff Bezos, of any other companies that develop space activities, much more people will fly into outer space in the future. And the space tourists will develop. So now, by instance, the Axiom company, if you know the Axiom, they are broker for astronauts. But in the future, they will build their own space station for touristic purposes, for scientific purposes, but a fully private space station. And not only them, there are many other projects. 
I want to close this with one last question. And you touched on a lot of things that I think this question is going to actually hit them all. Do you think that we are alone in this universe? Because you mentioned that once you were in space, you saw yourself, your, your sense of ego, your sense of, oh, I'm Romanian. No, you were just, you felt like, man, we're part of a bigger thing here. A citizen of a planet. Exactly. So it's, this is what I wanted to ask you. I mean, it's, do you think in this universe, there is life on other planets or on other, on other galaxies? Do you think where we are alone? First, when you reach the outer space, you feel strong, powerful, that you build such an equipment, such an infrastructure to take you up there. But at the same time, looking around, understanding their space debris, their meteorites, uh, you feel very vulnerable as a human being. And the two feelings of strongness, of powerful and vulnerability, they represent something uh, very special up there into the outer space. Uh, in the same time, you think you see the black cosmos, the black universe, and you understand that uh, your Earth is just a small planet in the solar system. And the solar system itself, it's a stellar system that's a margin of the universe somewhere. And like the solar systems, there are many, many millions or billions of systems in, uh, in the universe. Of course, it's absurd to think that we are the only intelligent beings in the universe. For sure, life exists in other places. Now we discover water on a lot of uh, planets and moons of the planets in the solar systems. And we just think that where it's water could be a biological life. At what level of development? It's another problem, but could be life. And of course, uh, we think that in the universe, they are intelligent beings, maybe much more developed than we are, maybe less developed. We don't know yet. And well, still very far to determine where could be intelligent life in the universe right now. We're just in the beginning of the exploration of the space. Exactly. Because guys like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, these guys are just taking it to a little But my point is that you saw us from outer space and I admire that. I appreciate everything you have done. And if you want to give a piece of advice to kids that want to become astronauts, you have two sons. They're both pilots. Would you, what advice would you give kids or young guys or, or gals that are in high school right now and they're just thinking of maybe I want to be in space one day. Maybe I want to be an astronaut. What advice would you give? Yeah, actually, you know, my, my older son, uh, it's a professional pilot. It's uh, the director for uh, flight operations in our national company, Tarom. He likes to fly. He wanted to fly into the outer space, but now it's too late. Now he's 47 and it's too late to volunteer for the outer space. And maybe no one will take him now, right now. Uh, the younger one is not a pilot. It works in the uh, aviation authority, uh, civil aviation authority in Romania. A lot of kids, they want to fly. They dream to fly. Some of them, they have capabilities to develop their skills, uh, to be very healthy and uh, to volunteer for the outer space. Some not, but could work in the field of space, could develop devices, could contribute to the building of rockets, of satellites, and being happy with the profession. My advice is to, to have a target and to dream to realize this target, to have a goal and to dream to do it. To reach your goal. If you don't dream, you just stuck. You don't progress. My dream from the childhood was to fly. 
I couldn't dream at that time to fly into the outer space because for Romania at that time, it was too far. For us, outer space belonged to the Soviet Union and to the United States, not to Romania. But I dreamed to fly into the air. I graduated from the aerospace engineering faculty, uh, learning how to build airplanes, and I really dreamed to build my own airplanes and to fly my own airplanes. But I was just in the right time, in the right uh, moment, uh, in the right place to volunteer from the outer space. And look, my life changed and I turned to the outer space from the aviation. Dream, thank you so, so much for your time. And you have a foundation and a book. Uh, would you like to share that with the podcast and where, where we can find you? I think it's a bit difficult to find the book now. I have a foundation named Cosmonautometro.impronario. I organize uh, events, I uh, sponsor kids or clubs that do with science. I gather money from sponsors with the occasion of different uh, activities I organize. And they were published several books with interviews with me, but one of them, the most complete one, was the biography of myself, um, Dimitri Dorin Purnario, the biography of a cosmonaut. It was published uh, in 2012 in the published uh, house at the Verul, even it doesn't exist anymore in the forms uh, existed at that time, was a private one belonging to a newspaper. And the book was sold through them. Maybe, who knows, you can find online uh, somebody wants to sell the book or even the publishing house could print additional books to be sold because I tell you, it's a big demand for them in Romania because it was published in Romania. Maybe, I think, uh, so I'm already 70. I think in the next years to write myself my memories and to publish them in English as well. It would be very cool to see a movie out of you. Okay, give the idea to a producer. <laughs> I know some people and I hope that I'll pitch about the first Romanian ever in space. I'm sure people will dig everything that you did and you just shared a lot with us. And again, I cannot thank you enough. And I hope that you can join our podcast in the future because again, it, there's so much for you to share and there's so much that I know we didn't touch on, but I really want to touch on in the future. And so I cannot thank you again for your time, Doreen. Welcome, Javier. And guys, don't forget, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify. You can go on our YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, join our Patreon. Every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be right here with you. So with that being said, guys, have a great rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you. And we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.